1: Part 5 of Chapter 10 of Book 1 of The Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part 5 of Chapter 10 of Book 1 of Wages and Profit in the Different Employments of Labour and Stock. Thirdly, the policy of Europe, by obstructing the free circulation of labor and stock, both from employment to employment, and from place to place, occasions, in some cases, a very inconvenient inequality in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of their different employments. The statute of apprenticeship obstructs the free circulation of labor from one employment to another, even in the same place. The exclusive privileges of corporations obstruct it from one place to another, even in the same employment. It frequently happens, that while high wages are given to the workmen in one manufacture, those in another are obliged to content themselves with bare subsistence. The one is in an advancing state, and has therefore a continual demand for new hands. The other is in a declining state, and the superabundance of hands is continually increasing. Those two manufacturers may sometimes be in the same town, and sometimes in the same neighborhood, without being able to lend the least assistance to one another the statute of apprenticeship may oppose it in the one case and both that and an exclusive corporation in the other in many different manufactures however the operations are so much alike that the workmen could easily change trades with one another if those absurd laws did not hinder them the arts of weaving plain linen and plain silk for example are almost entirely the same that of weaving plain woolen is somewhat different but the difference is so insignificant that either a linen or a silk weaver might become a tolerable workman in a few days if any of those three capital manufacturers therefore were decaying the workman might find a resource in one of the other two which was in a more prosperous condition and their wages would neither rise too high in the thriving nor sink too low in the decaying manufacture. the linen manufacture indeed is in england by a particular statute open to everybody but as it is not much cultivated through the greater part of the country it can afford no general resource to the workmen of other decaying manufacturers who wherever the statute of apprenticeship takes place have no other choice but thither to come upon the parish or to work as common labourers for which by their habits they are much worse qualified than for any sort of manufacture that bears any resemblance to their own they generally therefore choose to come upon the parish Whatever obstructs the free circulation of labour from one employment to another obstructs that of stock likewise. The quantity of stock which can be employed in any branch of business depending very much upon that of the labour which can be employed in it. Corporation laws, however, give less obstruction to the free circulation of stock from one place to another than to that of labour. It is everywhere much easier for a wealthy merchant to obtain the privilege of trading in a town corporate than for a poor artificer to obtain that of working in it the obstruction which corporation laws give to the free circulation of labour is common i believe to every part of europe that which is given to it by the poor laws is so far as i know peculiar to england it consists in the difficulty which a poor man finds in obtaining a settlement or even in being allowed to exercise his industry in any parish but that to which he belongs it is the labour of artificers and manufacturers only of which the free circulation is obstructed by corporation laws the difficulty of obtaining settlements obstructs even that of common labour it may be worth while to give some account of the rise progress and present state of this disorder the greatest perhaps of any in the police of england When, by the destruction of monasteries, the poor had been deprived of the charity of those religious houses, after some other ineffectual attempts for their relief, it was enacted by the forty-third of Elizabeth, c. 2, that every parish should be bound to provide for its own poor, and that overseers of the poor should be annually appointed, who, with the church-wardens, should raise, by a parish rate, competent sums for this purpose. By this statute, the necessity of providing for their own poor was indispensably imposed upon every parish, who were to be considered as the poor of each parish became therefore a question of some importance this question after some variation was at last determined by the thirteenth and fourteenth of charles the second when it was enacted that forty days undisturbed residence should gain any person a settlement in any parish but that within that time it should be lawful for two justices of the peace upon complaint made by the churchwardens or overseers of the poor to remove any new inhabitant to the parish where he was last legally settled unless he either rented a tenement of ten pounds a year or could give such security for the discharge of the parish where he was then living as those justices should judge sufficient some frauds it is said were committed in consequence of this statute parish officers sometimes bribing their own poor to go clandestinely to another parish and by keeping themselves concealed for forty days to gain a settlement there to the discharge of that to which they properly belonged it was enacted therefore by the first of james the second that the forty days undisturbed residence of any person necessary to gain a settlement should be accounted only from the time of his delivering notice in writing of the place of his abode and the number of his family to one of the churchwardens or overseers of the parish where he came to dwell But parish officers, it seems, were not always more honest with regard to their own than they had been with regard to other parishes, and sometimes connived at such intrusions, receiving the notice and taking no proper steps in consequence of it as every person in a parish therefore was supposed to have an interest to prevent as much as possible their being burdened by such intruders it was further enacted by the third of william the third that the forty days residence should be accounted only from the publication of such notice in writing on sunday in the church immediately after divine service after all says dr This kind of settlement, by continuing forty days after publication of notice in writing, is very seldom obtained, and the design of the acts is not so much for gaining of settlements as for the avoiding of them by persons coming into a parish clandestinely, for the giving of notice is only putting a force upon the parish to remove but if a person's situation is such that it is doubtful whether he is actually removable or not he shall by giving of notice compel the parish either to allow him a settlement uncontested by suffering him to continue forty days or by removing him to try the right this statute therefore rendered it almost impracticable for a poor man to gain a new settlement in the old way by forty days inhabitancy but that it might not appear to preclude altogether the common people of one parish from ever establishing themselves with security in another it appointed four other ways by which a settlement might be gained without any notice delivered or published the first was by being taxed to parish rates and paying them the second by being elected into an annual parish office and serving it in a year the third by serving an apprenticeship in the parish the fourth being hired into service there for a year, and continuing in the same service during the whole of it. Nobody can gain a settlement by either of the two first ways, but by the public deed of the whole parish, who are too well aware of the consequences to adopt any newcomer who has nothing but his labour to support him, either by taxing him to parish rates, or by electing him into a parish office. No married man can well gain any settlement in either of the last two ways an apprentice is scarce ever married and is expressly enacted that no married servant shall gain any settlement by being hired for a year the principal effect of introducing settlement by service has been to put out in a great measure the old fashion of hiring for a year which before had been so customary in england that even at this day if no particular term is agreed upon the law intends that every servant is hired for a year but masters are not always willing to give their servants a settlement by hiring them in this manner and servants are not always willing to be so hired, because, as every last settlement discharges all the foregoing, they might thereby lose their original settlement in the places of their nativity, the habitation of their parents and relations. No independent workman, it is evident, whether labourer or artificer, is likely to gain any new settlement, either by apprenticeship or by service. When such a person, therefore, carried his industry to a new parish, he was liable to be removed how healthy and industrious soever at the caprice of any churchwarden or overseer unless he either rented a tenement of ten pounds a year a thing impossible for one who has nothing but his labour to live by or could give such security for the discharge of the parish as two justices of the peace should judge sufficient what security they shall require indeed is left altogether to their discretion but they cannot well require less than thirty pounds it having been enacted that the purchase even of a freehold estate of less than thirty pounds value shall not gain any person a settlement as not being sufficient for the discharge of the parish but this is a security which scarce any man who lives by labour can give and much greater security is frequently demanded in order to restore, in some measure, that free circulation of labour which those different statutes had almost entirely taken away, the invention of certificates was fallen upon. By the eighth and ninth of William Third, it was enacted that if any person should bring a certificate from the parish where he was last legally settled, subscribed by the church wardens and overseers of the poor, and allowed by two justices of the peace, that every other parish should be obliged to receive him that he should not be removable merely upon account of his being likely to become chargeable but only upon his becoming actually chargeable and that then the parish which granted the certificate should be obliged to pay the expense both of his maintenance and of his removal and in order to give the most perfect security to the parish where such certificated man should come to reside it was further enacted by the same statute that he should gain no settlement there by any means whatever except either by renting a tenement of ten pounds a year or by serving upon his own account in an annual parish office for one whole year and consequently neither by notice nor by service nor by apprenticeship nor by paying parish rates By the twelfth of Queen Anne II, stat 1, c. 18, it was further enacted that neither the servants nor apprentices of such certificated man should gain any settlement in the parish where he resided under such certificate. How far this invention has restored that free circulation of labour, which the preceding statutes had almost entirely taken away, we may learn from the following very judicious observation of Dr. Byrne it is obvious says he that there are diverse good reasons for requiring certificates with persons coming to settle in any place namely that persons residing under them can gain no settlement neither by apprenticeship nor by service nor by giving notice nor by paying parish rates that they can settle neither apprentices nor servants that if they become chargeable it is certainly known whether to remove them and the parish shall be paid for the removal and for their maintenance in the meantime, and that, if they fall sick and cannot be removed, the parish which gave the certificate must maintain them, none of all which can be without a certificate. Which reasons will hold proportionably for parishes not granting certificates in ordinary cases? For it is far more than an equal chance, but that they will have the certificated persons again, and in a worse condition. The moral of this observation seems to be that certificates ought always to be required by the parish where any poor man comes to reside, and that they ought very seldom to be granted by that which he purposes to leave. There is somewhat of a hardship in this matter of certificates, says the same very intelligent author in his history of the poor laws, by putting it in the power of a parish officer to imprison a man as it were for life however inconvenient it may be for him to continue at that place where he has had the misfortune to acquire what is called a settlement, or whatever advantage he may propose himself by living elsewhere. Though a certificate carries along with it no testimonial of good behavior, and certifies nothing but that the person belongs to the parish to which he really does belong, it is altogether discretionary in the parish officers either to grant or to refuse it, A mandamus was once moved for, says Dr. Byrne, to compel the church wardens and overseers to sign a certificate, but the court of King's Bench rejected the notion as a very strange attempt. The very unequal price of labour which we frequently find in England, in places at no great distance from one another, is probably owing to the obstruction which the law of settlements gives to a poor man who would carry his industry from one parish to another without a certificate. A single man, indeed, who is healthy and industrious, may sometimes reside by sufferance without one. But a man with a wife and family, who should attempt to do so, would, in most parishes, be sure of being removed. And, if the single man should afterwards marry, he would generally be removed likewise. The scarcity of hands in one parish, therefore, cannot always be relieved by their superabundance in another, as it is constantly in Scotland, and, I believe, in all other countries where there is no difficulty of settlement in such countries though wages may sometimes rise a little in the neighbourhood of a great town or wherever else there is an extraordinary demand for labour and sink gradually as the distance from such places increases till they fall back to the common rate of the country yet we never meet with those sudden and unaccountable differences in the wages of neighbouring places which we sometimes find in england where it is often more difficult for a poor man to pass the artificial boundary of a parish than an arm of the sea or a ridge of high mountains natural boundaries which sometimes separate very distinctly different rates of wages in other countries. To remove a man who has committed no misdemeanour from the parish where he chooses to reside is an evident violation of natural liberty and justice. The common people of England, however, so jealous of their liberty, but, like the common people of most other countries, never rightly understanding wherein it consists, have now, for more than a century together, suffered themselves to be exposed to this oppression without a remedy though men of reflection, too, have sometimes complained of the law of settlements as a public grievance, yet it has never been the object of any general popular clamour, such as that against general warrants, an abusive practice undoubtedly, but such a one as was not likely to occasion any general oppression. There is scarce a poor man in England, of forty years of age, I will venture to say, who has not, in some part of his life, felt himself most cruelly oppressed by this ill-contrived law of settlements. I shall conclude this long chapter with observing that, though anciently it was usual to rate wages, first by general laws extending over the whole kingdom, and afterwards by particular orders of the justices of peace in every particular county, both these practices have now gone entirely into disuse. By the experience of above four hundred years, says Dr. Byrne, it seems time to lay aside all endeavours to bring under strict regulations what in its own nature seems incapable of minute limitation for if all persons in the same kind of work were to receive equal wages there would be no emulation and no room left for industry or ingenuity particular acts of parliament however still attempt sometimes to regulate wages in particular trades and in particular places thus the eighth of george the third prohibits under heavy penalties all master tailors in london and five miles round it from giving and their workmen from accepting more than two shillings and sevenpence halfpenny a day except in the case of a general mourning. whenever the legislature attempts to regulate the differences between masters and their workmen its counsellors are always the masters when the regulation therefore is in favour of the workmen it is always just and equitable but it is sometimes otherwise when in favour of the masters. Thus the law which obliges the masters in several different trades to pay their workmen in money and not in goods is quite just and equitable. It imposes no real hardship upon the masters. It only obliges them to pay that value in money which they pretended to pay, but did not always really pay in goods. This law is in favour of the workmen, but the eighth of George the third is in favour of the masters. When masters combine together, in order to reduce the wages of their workmen, they commonly enter into a private bond or agreement not to give more than a certain wage under a certain penalty. Were the workmen to enter into a contrary combination of the same kind, not to accept of a certain wage under a certain penalty, the law would punish them very severely, and, if it dealt impartially, it would treat the masters in the same manner but the eighth of George the third enforces by law that very regulation which masters sometimes attempt to establish by such combinations. The complaint of the workman, that it puts the ablest and most industrious upon the same footing with an ordinary workman, seems perfectly well founded. In ancient times, too, it was usual to attempt to regulate the profits of merchants and other dealers by regulating the price of provisions and other goods. The assize of bread is, so far as I know, the only remnant of this ancient usage where there is an exclusive corporation it may perhaps be proper to regulate the price of the first necessary of life but where there is none the competition will regulate it much better than any assize the method of fixing the assize of bread established by the thirty-first of george the second could not be put in practice in scotland on account of a defect in the law its execution depending upon the office of clerk of the market which does not exist there this defect was not remedied till the third of george the third the want of an assize occasioned no sensible inconveniency and the establishment of one in the few places where it has yet taken place has produced no sensible advantage in the greater part of the towns in scotland however there is an incorporation of bakers who claim exclusive privileges though they are not very strictly guarded the proportion between the different rates both of wages and profit in the different employments of labour and stock seems not to be much affected as has already been observed by the riches or poverty the advancing, stationary, or declining state of the society. Such revolutions in the public welfare, though they affect the general rates both of wages and profit, must, in the end, affect them equally in all different employments. The proportion between them, therefore, must remain the same and cannot well be altered, at least for any considerable time, by any such revolutions. End of book one, chapter ten, part five.